Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. I want to read verses 7 to 13, Romans 15. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in this text. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That last verse ought to sound very familiar. We've concluded many uh, Sunday mornings with that text. Now, what I want you to think about here. This is the final section of this epistle where we have an exhortation. It's only one exhortation. It is really the conclusion to Paul's theological treatise on justification by faith, the gospel of God. And then its application with a series of exhortations and how it's to be lived out in the life of the believer. Because after verse 13... He deals with his travel plans and his intention to take the collection up to Jerusalem and then his greetings. So we're at the end of this epistle, basically, as far as his theological presentation goes. This is the conclusion of it. So it's it's significant because of how he concludes it in verse 13. So let's come, and I want you to consider verses 7 through 9, and just the first part of verse 9. 9a, as they say. This exhortation to welcome one another, and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in that regard. Now think of this verse, and going back to chapter 14 and verse 1, as sort of like the bookends of this entire section, because he's still dealing with this same subject of Christians receiving one another, treating one another with kindness, welcoming one another. And why, why is Paul stressing that? Again, the backstory to the book of Romans is, apparently there was some tension among the Jewish segment of the church in Rome and the Gentile segment. It was predominantly a Gentile church, but there were Jewish believers there. And there was some tension and disunity among them because of their different opinions about certain things regarding 
keeping the law, observing days, eating certain kind of food, and whatnot. I'm not going to go much further than that. Go back to chapter 14 and notice how it begins. Verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Now this is all the same word in the original. Now back to chapter 15 and verse 7. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So Paul has used this verb translated welcome in in our Bible version four times. These are the bookends, as it were, that are holding this whole section on each end. So he's still dealing with the same theme of welcoming one another. Now, what what is Paul talking about? What does he mean by that? Well, it means more than tolerating one another. Don't limit it to that. That's not what he's talking about. This word has a, has a, a nice, beautiful meaning, actually. It's the idea of receiving and accepting another person into your society, into your home, into your circle of acquaintance with a warmness. Let me give you an example of its use in the book of Acts, chapter 28, when Paul and the shipwreck crew landed on the island of Malta. Remember when we went through that? Considered the storm at sea. The ship broke up and Paul and all those people, over 200, they landed on this island in the Mediterranean known as Malta. Verse 2 of Acts 28. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. So that was a very warm welcome. That's a beautiful illustration from another place of the idea behind this word. And notice that Paul says one another. So it's no longer just welcoming uh, the weak or the strong to each other, but he's addressing, by saying one another, the entire church. He's addressing all the Christians at Rome, because not all the Christians fell into the weak or the strong. No doubt there were some in between. So this is a good, this is an exhortation for the entire church, the entire family of God. Now it's wonderful how he reinforces this exhortation. Who does he appeal to as our example? How are we to model our welcoming one another? Upon whom? do we base our welcoming of one another upon? Well, as Paul says here, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Same word, for the glory of God. Just think about this now, as a Christian, how Jesus Christ welcomed us. Yeah, I was trying to think, where, where would I go in the New Testament to illustrate that? Well, you could, you could look at many places. You could see how he welcomed Every person that ever came to him. Even Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, he welcomed him and had a conversation with him. But I I love especially Luke 15. 
Because Luke 15 precipitated, the beginning of it precipitated his beautiful parable that had three parts of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But why did Jesus tell those stories? It was because he was being criticized by the Jewish leadership that he received sinners. He welcomed sinners. He went to their home and he had a meal with them. They came to him and he engaged in conversation with them. He showed them compassion. He welcomed them. There was a beautiful sincerity in Jesus Christ, an unconditional welcoming. No reservations, no strings attached. He didn't do this to get anything from anybody. He didn't have an ulterior motive. It was a wholehearted welcome and embrace. Is that what you experience, my brother and sister, when you became a Christian? Did Jesus Christ welcome you? Did he receive you? He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. John tells us, quoting Jesus in John 6, 37. I will in no wise cast him out. And notice that the Lord's welcoming us was for whose glory? Who ultimately gets the glory? For sinners that come to Christ, he receives them, they're saved by him. God gets all the glory. So Jesus' life brought great glory to God and how he treated people. So he's our model, our attitude, our treatment of one another is to be based on how Jesus Christ treated us. That's Paul's point. Now, verse 8, Paul's going to develop this a little further. Because remember, it's a problem between Jew and Gentile. Now he's going to apply this, what he just said about how Christ welcomed us, to how he welcomed both Jew and Gentile into the covenant body of his people, into the membership of the covenant community of God's people. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Now, clearly, who is he talking about there? He was a servant to the Jewish people. Why does Paul say the circumcised? Well, that was their peculiar mark in the flesh that identified them as God's covenant people. This is what one of their identifying characteristics. And in particular, Jesus was the servant of the circumcised. Remember, he told that woman who came from the Tyre and Sidon region up in the Gentile area on the Mediterranean coast who came to him, the lady who had a... a, daughter possessed by a demon. And you know the story, how Jesus dealt with her in Matthew 15. But he said to her at one point that he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was trying to, he was bringing out her faith by throwing these negative things out to her, refusing to talk to her at first, and then all those things that followed. Finally, he says, great is your faith. But he particularly came for Israel. Now, notice why Paul says that. He became the servant. By the way, the word for servant here is the word for deacon. Diakonos. 
Diakonos referred to a lowly, humble form of service before it was applied to the office in the church. So any lowly form of service was performed by someone you could say was a deacon, a diakonos. And it's interesting that that's applied to the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul said. He had the form of God before he came to this world, and then he took the form of a servant, Philippians 2.7. So when we looked at Jesus and observed his life, he, w- he was as one who served among us. And this is what he said in a few places. I am among you as one who serves, Luke 22, verse 27. So Lord Jesus Christ modeled service, humble service, especially did we see it when he took off his robe, he girded himself with a towel, and he took a basin of water and went around and washed the filthy feet of the disciples. That was the king of glory who did that. I am among you as one who serves. So he was the servant to the circumcised, that is the Jewish people, particularly in his first advent. For what reason? To show God's truthfulness. Now, what do you mean by that, Paul? We'll go on with the verse. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So his advent coming to this world as a servant to the Jewish people, was to prove God's faithfulness to his word, particularly in the covenant that God made with the patriarchs, that is, with the the Jewish fathers, beginning with Abraham. So Paul is thinking particularly of the Abrahamic covenant, first recorded in Genesis 12, When he called Abraham out of the Mesopotamia area, he was a pagan, revealed himself, Yahweh revealed himself to Abram, sent him to the land of Canaan. This is going to be the family that is going to bless the nations of the world. And he gave them the land. So Jesus Christ came as the servant to the Jews to fulfill those promises of the Abrahamic covenant. But now notice Paul goes on in the first part of verse 9, and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant actually had a further purpose. Notice it. Look at verse 9. Follow the way Paul is arguing this. He became the servant of the circumcised to show God's faithfulness, his truthfulness in confirming the covenant to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now why does Paul add them? Because the Gentiles are also included in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember this? It wasn't all about... Abraham and his family. God told Abraham that in your descendants, all the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed. That's the Gentile world. The Jewish nation and the rest of the world. The Gentile world. 
So God fulfilled his promises to the to Abraham and his people by bringing the Gentiles in to the body of Christ, into the covenant community of God's people. Paul is showing that the inclusion of the Gentiles was part of God's original plan. It was part of the promises to the patriarchs. In other words, Paul is trying to give the church at Rome the theological background and understanding of why these Jewish people are here and why the Gentile people are here. It was all along God's plan to bring them together to himself. One little detail that's worth noticing, the basis upon which the promises are fulfilled to the patriarchs is the the covenant, that's the reason God is dealing with them in particular. It's his promise to them. But when he comes to the Gentiles, the emphasis is upon God's mercy. Do you see that? Now, it's true that God showed mercy to the Jewish people as well. It's, it's mercy to everyone. But Paul is thinking here of the covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants, the Gentiles, because they are strangers to the covenant. There was no covenant made with the Gentiles. Paul brings that out in his letter to the church at Ephesus when he talks to them about what their former state was. They were without hope, without God, stranger to the covenant of promise. So the Gentiles in particular are received on the basis of God's mercy. That's you and me. We glorify God for his mercy and his kindness to us. But both are received this upon this in the same way by faith to the same blessings of salvation, the same privileges. There's not a different salvation for the Jewish people from the way God saves Gentiles. Remember in Romans chapter 3, Paul dealt with that. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And then Paul says that it's by faith for both of them. The Jews are saved by faith and the Gentiles are saved through faith. He mixes up the prepositions, but it comes to the same thing. It's still by faith, by faith that we're saved. So the way of salvation does not change from Jew to Gentile. We are all saved the same way through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God. This is how he receives us to the same salvation, the same privileges, the same blessings are ours. So Paul is laying this foundation about the the inclusion of the Gentiles. There, he wants the, the Jewish people in the church at Rome to realize these Gentiles that you're looking down on because they're not following the law like you are, they're very much the fulfillment of God's promises to your patriarchs. What an argument. 
What an argument. He's laying down this, this foundation for them. So they got a clear understanding that this is God's purpose, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. And the Gentiles to recognize that everything goes back to them. They're the privileged people. They brought us the Bible. They brought us the Messiah. They brought us the promises of God. As he tells us back in the ninth chapter, the privileges of the Jewish people. Now, in order to buttress this argument in verses 9b through 12, Paul appeals to the Old Testament. And like we know this apostle, he loved to like do rapid fire with the Bible, as it is written, and one verse after another. Paul was so... Remember, Paul is dictating this letter. He didn't have an Old Testament at hand and say, hey, let me look this up first. I can't remember where this is found. No, he knew, he knew the Old Testament. He's a, he, he is a first-rate scholar in the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul. He knew these texts. He, he knew these texts very well because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's very clear on what his calling is and why he is going to them. Now, it's beautiful. Here's something else. These verses, these verses are taken from the three categories of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. So the Jewish Bible, he's quoting from each of those divisions of the Old Testament. And let me mention what they are. The first quotation, as it is written... Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That is found in Psalm 18, verse 50, 49, and 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty. In both of those places, this verse is found. The second quotation, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three. And Paul's primarily quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was Paul's Bible translation, as it were. Most of his quotations are from the Septuagint, made 200 years before Jesus. The third quotation, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him, that's Psalm 117 in verse 1, the shortest psalm, two verses. He quotes verse 1. And then the final, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, for in him the Gentiles will trust. That's Isaiah 11 and verse 10. Okay, so those are... The writings, those are the, po the poetry books. Includes Job, Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. And he quotes from the Psalms as well. So that's the first thing. It tells us Paul's view of the whole Old Testament. It's the word of God. It's authoritative. He had no mistrust in the Old Testament. Now, you'll notice in all those texts... 
they all refer to the Gentiles, don't they? Gentiles is in all those verses five times. So it's all about them. The context of three of those quotations is the worship of God. I'm just bringing out some things here and then I want you to note something. They're worshiping God, the Gentiles. They're worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh. And then also, I want you to see this progression. There is a progression in these verses when you look at them. Notice the first one. Therefore, I will praise you. This is a psalmist. I will praise you among the Gentiles. Now, some of the commentators, they see this may, you might apply this to a Jew of the dispersion who was taken out of the land of Israel and they find themselves living among the Gentiles, as occurred with the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar came down, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and carried away many captives. They were also taken captive a few centuries before by the Assyrians, the Assyrian captivity. So the Jewish people found themselves dispersed among the Gentiles in their history. Here is a Jew who possibly is living in that context, and he is continuing his worship of the true God. And the Gentiles are right there, and they're, they're a part of this. They're listening to this. They're seeing and witnessing this pious Jewish believer worshiping Yahweh, even though he's among Gentiles. That's one way to look at this. It could imply that the Gentiles are sympathetic to it, that they're interested in the worship of the God of Israel. So here is this believer, and he's among the Gentiles worshiping. Now notice the second quotation. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Oh, it's changing now. Now the Gentiles are called upon to worship Yahweh along with the Israelites. They're joining in the worship. I mean, there's almost a progression here in the history of, the, of God's dealings with the world. Right from the Old Testament into the New Testament. This is the way it struck me. Well, the Gentiles are worshiping with God's people. And then notice the third quotation. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. No mention of the Israelites. They're worshiping on their own. They're worshiping independently of the nation. This is how the church almost was in early Christianity after it moved out of Jerusalem. All those Gentile churches that the Apostle Paul and his co-labors founded throughout Europe, Asia, and then into Europe. They consisted primarily of Gentiles worshiping God. So I, I love that progression. 
that Paul is noting in the worship of God among the Gentiles. Now, when you come to the fourth quotation, here is the reason why they're worshiping. Here is the cause for why the Gentiles are finding hope in the God of Israel. The root of Jesse will come. Now, the root here means a shoot off of a root. That's what the word means. A shoot off of the root. What is this referring to? This is a messianic designation. This is referring to the Messiah. That he was to come from Jesse. Who is Jesse? Well, remember Boaz married Ruth and they had a son named Obed. Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of King David. The Messiah was to be the descendant of the line of David from Jesse. And he's called the root of Jesse, the offshoot of Jesse. Over in the New Testament, twice in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ is said to be the root of David, the descendant of David. So here's the reason. This is why the Gentiles are in the church. This is why we're together with Jewish believers. It all has to do with the one who was to come from Jesse. This is a Christmas story here, right? <laughs> I'm preaching a Christmas sermon without even intending to. It's, it's just falling out that way. Now, look what the text says. So the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises. Now, this word arises is the word that's used over and over again in the New Testament for Christ's resurrection. So this is, this is more than meaning that he's just going to come into the world and be here. This could very well be he's going to, that this could reference his resurrection. Because it is with... The resurrection that he became the ruler of the world and of Gentiles. He will he who arises to rule the Gentiles. His resurrection was with a view to his becoming the king. And is he the king of the Jews only? No, he's also the king of the Gentiles. Pilate thought he was the king of the Jews only. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, he died and rose again that he might be the Lord of who? Paul just said it in the last chapter, chapter 14, of the living and the dead. Everyone. He's the Lord of all. But particularly here when Paul's talking about arising to rule the Gentiles in this context, and then he adds, and in him will the Gentiles hope... He's thinking in terms of salvation, how he's going to bless the Gentile world. So think of the rule of the Lord Jesus as a rule that results in the blessing of the world, the blessing of the Gentile world in their salvation. His throne is called in Hebrews 4, the throne of grace. Yes, someday he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And he's going to dash to pieces his enemies. But that's not the emphasis now. His rule is a 
a rule of grace. He does not use physical arms to win people or to bring people to believe in him. He doesn't threaten them in that sense. But he conquers men with the heart, with with the truth. He conquers the heart of man with the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth, that everyone who is of the truth will hear him and believe in him, as he told Pilate. So he rules to bless. I want to just underscore that, that wherever his rule is found, blessings abound to mankind. That's what Jesus Christ has done for the world. So he arises to rule the Gentiles, and because of that, they will trust in him. They will find their hope in Jesus. So Paul was sent by this root of Jesse, the shoot of Jesse, to carry on a mission to the Gentiles. Remember what that mission was, according to Paul's word to King Agrippa? We should all know this text, Acts 26, 18. Why was Christ, why did Jesus Christ send Paul to the Gentile world? To open their eyes that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, in order that they may find a place, in order that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and find a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I love that verse. That's Acts 26, 18. It's a verse worth memorizing. Because that explains the nature of Paul's mission to the Gentiles. That is the mission of every missionary, by the way, that Christ sends into the world in his name. It's to open the eyes of the blind, turn them from Satan's power to God, in order that they might be forgiven and might have a place among God's sanctified people and have a glorious eternal future with them. That's the goal of missions. Okay, beautiful passage, right? It's wonderful. Now let's come to verse 13. I'm isolating this because this is Paul's conclusion to this section. To Actually, this is the conclusion to his letter that deals with his proclamation of the gospel, his ex- explanation of the gospel of God. Here's how he sums it up. This is a wish prayer. Remember the definition of a wish prayer? What is a wish prayer? That is these benedictions, these prayers that Paul often inserts into his letters that he intends for the church to hear. They are real intercessory requests of the apostle for these people, but he's letting them in on his prayer. He's letting them listen in to what he's asking for them. And here's what he prays for the church at Rome. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may, by the power of the Holy Spirit, abound in hope. So let's think our way through this. May the God of hope... There's there's other... Ways that God has 
identified himself in the New Testament through his servants, through Paul. He called him the God of comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. He's called the God of peace later in chapter 16 of this epistle. The God of hope. I love that one in particular. All of them are wonderful, but let's just think about the God of hope. Clearly, to say it like that, Paul is telling us that God is the source of hope. He's the God of hope. Particularly, hope comes from him. He gives people hope. He's the source of hope. But he's the, and, and thus, he is the object of hope. He's the one that we look to that gives us hope. And boy, do we ever need hope today, don't we? If you've been listening to the news or reading about it, we know that suicide is up 30% since 2020 in this country. People take their lives because, well, for many different reasons, but I think when it's all analyzed, the bottom line to it is that there's a hopelessness and a despair that would lead a person to end their life, that they have no, they can't see beyond their problems. There's nothing beyond it to keep them going in life, nothing to drive them, nothing to be passionate about anymore, and all their troubles come down on them. And the only thing one can do is just escape from it, they think, through taking their own life. So sad, so tragic. We cannot live without hope. You can live without water for a few days and without food for many more days, but somebody said you can't live without hope, and I, there's a lot of truth in that. Everybody needs hope. Now, if you're not a Christian, your hopes might be... And I was thinking, you know, what do people hope for? Well, they hope to retire. They're looking forward to their retirement. That keeps a lot of people going. I'm going to be done with my job in a few more years, and then, uh, then I can retire. It keeps them going. Or the purchase of something new. I mean, all these kind of things, they do not compare with the hope that Jesus Christ gives to the church. The hope that he gives is incomparable. I mean, just think of what he said to the apostles the night before he was crucified. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Does that fire you up? That passage? This is our hope is in Jesus Christ. So may the God of hope fill you. Notice that. Fill you. Fill you with all joy and peace. Now this this is key here in believing. You have to be a believer in order to have joy and peace. And Paul's whole argument right, for many chapters is about coming into a right relationship with God. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website 
at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.